I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Listening on Purpose. It's Tim. I'm so glad you're here with us. This conversation that we have for you today is a really beautiful one with an amazing human, brilliant musician, generous spirit named Renata Rolfing. Renata is a very lauded Juilliard trained concert pianist who now has a broader career that encompasses music psychotherapy. And this is such an interesting field. And the work that she has done on creating human connection and understanding ourselves and others better about grief, aging, memory, creativity, all of these things that are really, really incredible. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you've gathered that I am passionate about creating more and deeper human connection and also about how art can be the catalyst that creates that connection. And that is exactly where Renata is working. And so I wanted to have this conversation for you. It was great. We just sat down in a, in a dressing room um, at the Spoleto Festival USA in Charleston and uh, had this beautiful chat and are excited to share it with you today. Thanks for being here. Enjoy this conversation with the one and only wonderful Renata Rolfing. Renata, thanks for having this conversation with me. I'm really glad to see you and I'm excited to talk to you because you do a lot of things that I find intensely interesting. And so I'm interested to uncover some of those things with you today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm excited to talk to you too, because we've just seen each other briefly throughout, you know, many years in the industry. So, That's right. Yeah. It's the opening weekend of the Spoleto Festival USA in Charleston. Mm -hmm. We are both involved uh, as artists at the festival. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually in a dressing room at the Gilliard Center, which is one of the primary performance venues. And last night was the opening concert of the festival. And then mm -hmm. tonight is the opening of Vanessa, which is the opera that I'm conducting. Mm -hmm. So, and you have a big event this afternoon that yes. we're going to talk about a little bit. So we're just sort of sneaking this in. <laughs> like, <laughs> Between two yeah, very busy days. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I want to just hear a little bit about your background. You're a very lauded pianist. Thank you. But you do a lot of other things and a lot of the other things are what I want to get to. Mm -hmm. But can you just give us a little context, who you are, how you came to music and how you found meaning in it? Sure. Those are great questions. Finding meaning in music throughout the career. So I'm originally from Hawaii. I was born and raised there. I love it. I miss it a lot. Also to give a little context of what's going on outside is it's a unseasonably um, rainy, stormy <laughs> yeah. day, but perfect for Vanessa. Yeah, it's very blustery out there. <laughs> yeah. we, we walked up to the stage door at the same time, both kind of <laughs> blown through. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm originally from Hawaii. So this is a weather that I'm used to, but I was very lucky to have an excellent teacher growing up, a few excellent teachers. Um, and then I went to the East Coast for a conservatory. Um, and I just studied classical music, classical piano really intensely. After I graduated from my master's and I was very lucky to perform a lot um, with chamber musicians and singers, I started 
reading articles about what was going on in music and health and that intersection. And I w- it made me really excited. Mm. Um, and I had been performing for about seven years at that point, And I was very privileged to travel a lot and to work with great people. But I was definitely looking for a way to maybe translate some of my own skills and augment them um, into a profession that I felt was really blossoming at the time. And so I started reading articles about music and memory in particular, music and Alzheimer's, and all of the new research on the musical memory area that we know about now, that Mm -hmm. that's the last part of your brain that degenerates when you have um, memory issues. And I just thought like, wow, how can we take this, you know, we always talk about the power of music and the music is healing and to really try to apply a performer's perspective Mm. to that. And so then I auditioned for the NYU music therapy program. And now I teach at Berklee College of Music in In Boston, in Boston. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the music and psychology realm, and then also intro to music therapy. So, uh, Berkeley is so fun because the students are, you know, anywhere from film music majors to video game music majors, right. which is their new grad program, um, and also performers. And so you get a lot of great discussion. And then the second half of my life is um, working in clinical practice at NYU. So we work with people of all ages with physiological, psychiatric, and psychological kind of goals. I guess the first thing I love about it is how you're really also a scientist, right? And and in addition to being a musician, a performer, that there's this part of you that wants to know deeply how, how the impact that music can and does have and yes. how it connects to science. Yes. And so you're really gathering data and evaluating it. Yes. And, and bringing a scientific mind to it. And I think that's really, really fascinating um, to kind of blend those two things. So music therapy, mm-hmm. let's just define that a little more clearly sure. about because it is a field that is not that old actually yes, right like you mentioned earlier right. it was sort of something that was blossoming yeah. and that really caught your fascination and i remember when i was in graduate school in the early 2000s you know at florida state they had a music therapy program but it was yes. there it was one of a handful yes so tell us a little bit more about kind of more broadly what that discipline is Thank you. Yes. And Florida State is, as you know, such an important research institution Mm -hmm. in general um, and in music as well. So music therapy, and this has been, you know, challenged, I think, in recent years, but very broadly, it's about and how, how I understand it is that is how we use music to improve well-being and relationships. Mm. So whether that's spiritually physiologically, psychologically, um, and emotionally, how can we use music as a framework to transform um, somebody's just being and their existence? Mm. And so I feel like maybe that's something that resonates with you a lot because as a conductor, you're always trying to transform somebody's experience so that they come out not only 
with a memory of the experience, but also changed from that mm. experience. And so I feel like music therapy just gets a little bit more into, um, like you said, the scientific practice of that. I'm super passionate about live performance, right? Yes. And like most musicians, there are certain recordings that I love. And, you know, walking over here, I was listening to Mahler 2 on my AirPods. But those are predetermined outcomes. Mm-hmm. And my passion about live performance is that it's something that happens then once and then it's gone right and you know to quote hamilton you have to be in the room where it happened um (laughs) and um great quote (laughs) but you know what you said some about creating a memory is i've never really kind of really gone deep on that Mm -hmm. so let's go there like when when we're talking about a musical event or let's say the concert last night, mm-hmm. obviously everyone in the room, not just the performers are part of this. Yes. Right. Yes. It's a communal experience. I hope. And I, I, I think you probably hope that that is what sort of stays with us as everything gets more automated and yes, um, computer driven, et cetera, et cetera, that we keep coming back for these experiences of community, these shared experiences. Yes. So talk a little bit more about memory associating with a musical event. I am so glad you brought that up because, (laughs) and I think that your observation about the live experience is actually really key to memory and to strong memory. Mm. When one listens to a recording of a performance that even they were in or they conducted or that they listened to, it is never the same. You can maybe recreate some of the emotions, but it's never the same as when you were actually there. Mm. And we know that different parts of your memory activate. And so just having a listening experience is completely different from having a memory of a listening plus, as you said, unpredictable, maybe some improvisatory elements Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. that is a totally different type of memory. And it has a different impact on you as a person and your identity and how your brain encodes it. So an orchestra member, say in the orchestra that you're conducting, even if they listen to a recording of that performance, they will have similar reactions in their brain as to that actual live experience that they had. And that is really, really important, I think, to memory and to really encoding it. And I truly believe that, and you're touching something I I love discussing, is the transformative power of the actual musical experience Mm -hmm. itself that Mm -hmm. you're in the room for. You can talk about it. You can measure outcomes. You can talk around it, but you're never going to be able to get to what that actual experience was. Mm. That's so interesting because I had not completely thought about it in this context of memory. Mm -hmm. And if I'm understanding you well, you're saying that actually it being a live experience is key to this encoding. Absolutely. Yes. And your brain interprets it as part of you, as part of your identity. So that loss, you know, that many people felt as, 
uh, regular concert goers, as performers, as people who experience this kind of musical life uh, and being part of it, uh, that's why that loss was so extreme during the pandemic mm -hmm. because uh, you literally are losing a part of your identity and your brain understands it as that. And so um, maybe that leads into what's happening this afternoon, which is a community engagement project called Tell Your Story, and where community members are paired with some of the orchestral fellows. Mm -hmm. And the orchestral fellows are listening and um, asking questions and recording interviews of these community partners who are amazing. And they are actually organizing a lot of the partner's memories into a musical experience. You know, I heard a, a very beautiful exchange that happened between one of the violinists and her partner. And her partner said that she hadn't, she hadn't ever thought about it like that. And it made so much sense. That's what she said. So thinking about something, I think, in quotes like that is really musicalizing and organizing somebody's life and so putting that into a narrative form is so moving because mm -hmm. it makes it, it contains it it's a way for people to reflect on it and it actually amplifies those memories that's so interesting so actually providing sort of a new lens for understanding these memories exactly yes yeah and this is a really fascinating project this tell your story project that you've been curating here at the spoleto festival mm -hmm. and I want to talk a little bit more about that because the integration of community mm -hmm. is really important. And yes. I think that can be challenging for arts institutions to do in a truly authentic, meaningful way. And this is, I think, yeah. from when I first heard about it, I, it just seemed really magical to me. So how did you hatch this idea? You know, tell us about going down the rabbit hole a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, the kind of technical origins of it uh, came from John Kennedy, who's the director of orchestral performance here. He and also Eddie, the orchestral personnel manager, who's a good friend, and myself, we all wanted to figure out a way for People who came to the festival, so for our listeners, the orchestra, most of them are not from Charleston. Um, they love Charleston. It's a really special place for a lot of us. Right. So this um, is a nationally auditioned yes. orchestra of yeah. artists who tend to be early on in their career. Yes, exactly. Artists, young professionals. And, you know, they love Charleston. But we thought, okay, well, there are a couple of things here is are that a lot there is a huge swath of the community in Charleston that does not feel connected to the Spoleto Festival because, you know, while it has incredible performances, maybe there has not been access and there has not really been any navigation with a lot of the community. So we were trying to figure out a way to actually connect, like you said, authentically mm -hmm. to the community. While I love concerts for kids, um, you know, it's very, it's very transitory. And we know, right, and, and you know, as a conductor, and as somebody that interacts with people all the time, that interactive engagement is always, always better. Mm. Um, always, and mm. it encodes that memory. 
and it encodes your own purpose within that creative experience. While, of course, it's a heavier lift, it actually has a much deeper impact. And that's something that I really would challenge a lot of arts organizations to take on because the impact that it not only has had for the members of the community who are able to uh, have their stories amplified, it has changed the orchestra members who are a part of that experience, too. And right. that is really key. And that's something I care about a lot. I, what you just said, I think is really beautiful because it talks about the necessity of connecting these communities, right? And when I say these communities, specifically the audience or the, the community at large, but also these communities of the musicians on stage. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you can sort of give us a snapshot of one of these relationships and go a little deeper in it. Sure. I'll um, give one example from last year. You know, one uh, member of the orchestra was a wonderful classical flutist, you know, trained all the way, right? Pre-college, mm-hmm. undergrad, grad. Juilliard all the way. Juilliard yeah, right, all yeah. the way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, she was paired with um, an older adult from John's Island. And first of all, even though we're all in beautiful downtown Charleston, very few of us actually get out to John's Islands and right. the different islands. And that is where uh, so much of the history of Charleston and how people were moved to into downtown Charleston exists and uh, how people move in and out of the islands. And so just that knowledge, I think, connected the flutist much more deeply to place, to also having a relationship with somebody from a specific place. And this was a relationship over many months. Mm-hmm. And seeing where this person lives, seeing you know, meeting the family, understanding what music and what creative practice meant a lot to her. For example, uh, her partner said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a musician. And then of course it came out that she had, you know, traveled with a choir and, Mm -hmm. and was an excellent Mm -hmm. gospel singer. Mm -hmm. And so the flutist thought, okay, how can I bring in this person's creative practice and creative self into the music and they were able to discuss you know blues pieces blues songs blues music blues artists gospel artists that um, this person really cared about and um, the flutist was able to integrate that music into and really make it I think the central part of the piece Mm. and that was a huge uh, vulnerable spot for uh, the musician, for sure, because she said, you know, I don't really play jazz. I don't play blues. I don't, right. you know, but also being able to accept that part and trying to figure out an authentic way to express it with her instrument and with her skill in a way that would actually not only amplify the partner's memory of it, but also to, as you said, create a new lens. And I think that that piece in particular was so moving for the partner to listen to because she said, wow, I've, I kind of forgot that we talked about that, but of course that's such a huge part of who I am mm. and how I find my daily strength. And I think what this project has taught me is how is to 
the way to connect to people is to figure out how they use music and art as a resource in their life. And that is the way that they can feel the most authentic when they express themselves creatively. You know, so like you're saying, what is that interaction? What is that meaning? And it's actually so different for every person right. that we have to, and that arts organizations have to challenge ourselves to figure out how can we actually draw out and augment the creativity that's already there. And that's, it's, it's difficult, but it's so much more impactful. Mm. You know, this is something that I'm also really passionate about is the tool of creativity. Mm. Yeah. And I think in our, in our society, it's easy for these things to be delineated, right? We think about the creatives. Yes. We even call them the creatives and it's like, <laughs> yeah. they wear skinny jeans and chunky glasses and have, you know, <laughs> Live in cabinets with no, uh, you know, with no handles, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> right. The reality of life is that everyone is creative. Like creativity is, is in yes. everyone. And it's, I believe that it's just like breathing. Yes. And, and that, and that people I mean, can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone saw themselves as creative? I cannot, and, but it would be amazing. Right? Because can you imagine the, the empowerment that comes through yes. coming from a place of creativity and play is yes. pretty phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. That I believe, you know, and this is, of course, a bigger conversation is that is, I think, where we get into equity Mm. That is actually being able to access and amplify creativity as a resource creates a more equitable society. Like you said, there have been a lot of gatekeepers and gatekeeping mm -hmm. with creativity. You know, the creative class, for right. example, this sure. kind of thing. Um, creativity is seen a lot of times as a privilege. And I think that's so untrue and it's so... Um, it's, it's just not, it's not real. It's fake. And it's been created by whatever it is, the creative class or, you know, people that want to define themselves by how creative and how much access they've had to that artistry. And I think that the way to get to people's authentic selves is through creativity. Like you're saying, I'll, I have, a, of course, a lot of friends who work, um, in the hospitals, uh, in New York City, for example, and on many different ends of the therapeutic spectrum. So creative arts therapists and also verbal psychotherapists. And my really good friend, who's a verbal psychotherapist, I'm at Bellevue Hospital in the psychiatric unit. Um, she said, man, whenever I see the creative therapist work with my clients, I think I never see them like that. And that's really who they are. Mm. And just talking while talking, of course, like I love talking and I love conversation. And I think that's how we can get to accessing creativity is that when you are able to activate creativity in somebody, that is truly who they are. I collaborated on a sound lab at Harvard Arts Museum with my uh, friend and collaborator, Olivia Cosillo, who's an educator. And we set up, you know, this kind of experimental sound lab for kids. And the kids, you know, a couple of them maybe come in very shy and tentatively. Mm -hmm. And then they'll just wail away on yeah. these instruments. And you're like, 
that is who you are. That is what's inside. And we can't get there with all of the decorum and politeness right. and manners that we have in the society. And so being able to access that creativity is so important, you know, and this child who did not say a word for two minutes was just having a blast on the glockenspiel so much so that we had to like we had to kind of say okay well now it's someone else's term turn right. right and you can just understand so much more about who someone is inside by their creativity hey everybody it's tim my team and i work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers, that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S, and always happy to hear from you via email, that's timothy at timothymyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. That's really interesting, and I love kind of seeing you light up telling that story. Um, mm -hmm. And it just reminds me of the constant conversation that we have to be having about why creativity and music and the arts are not a nice to have. Yes. They're a, they're a must have, right? Absolutely. There's another really cool project that you worked on, and you actually wrote an article for psychology today about mm -hmm. one of these making music with voice recordings to process grief. You write when people we love pass away, it can feel as if we've lost the relationship forever and lost a part of ourselves as well. The explorative and regenerative nature of music allows us to build new memories through collaborative experiences with someone's voice connecting us to that person once again. So yeah. tell us about this, because this is, this is really fascinating. Thank you for bringing that in. It's a project I've worked on for a couple of years and uh, continue to work on it. So I realized that we have this kind of universal phenomena. I know, you know, universality is, is controversial, but many people um, save voicemails from mm -hmm. special people, voice memos that they maybe listen to or maybe don't listen to, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And there's somehow there's sonic artifact that we want to keep. And my thesis was on uh, how music can process grief and what are the implications of that and how can we use music more effectively to process grief and to go through that uh, transition and to move uh, through and with that grief, because I, I believe that grief is this beautiful part of who we are. Some people I know said they saved, you know, um, a when there used to be message machines, right. right? They save that person's, hello, welcome to, you know, you've reached the right. Johnsons. They save that after that person passes away just because their voice is so meaningful mm. to them. And so um, I thought, okay, well, there is this phenomenon of saving sonic artifacts, right? We know that we love to preserve, but there's something else here that we're missing. And the reason that so many people have this kind of, I think, uh, 
tepid relationship with those sonic artifacts is because the artifact itself has not changed, but the relationship to that person because of time mm -hmm. has changed, right? You know, you relook at relationships all the time, past and present, with new emotions. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, my collaborator and I thought, okay, how can we give people the opportunity to actually respond to this artifact? And so people, you know, listen to these voicemails and with a musician and with a practicing therapist like myself, they kind of gather their emotional thoughts. They want, they decide ways of amplifying it musically. This special voice, what is the most important thing in this voicemail? And, and the great thing about voicemails, right, is that it's casual and very right. intimate mm. a lot of the time. So you have this special quality of the casualness, and that's why it's so meaningful. Because it's one-to-one. -one. It's one-to-one. Right. right. There's sometimes pet names. Um, mm. It's maybe talking about something that that happened, maybe something that's going to happen. Maybe it's just like, oh, I'm thinking of you. You know, um, call me when you can, right? These kind of brief, intimate messages, mm -hmm. really. So how do you then respond to that and and create a dialogue with that voice expressing the emotion that you have to that. Maybe it's sadness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's longing. And so music gives a way to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So for example, there was one uh, member of the workshop that uh, he created this very pensive uh, piece from his uncle's voicemail very pensive, very soft, very quiet. And then about a year later, returned to that same piece. And it was a little more joyful and celebratory mm. because it was his uncle wishing happy birthday. And so right before his uncle had passed away. And so uh, this person was able to react to this voice in different ways. And so you're carrying that relationship forward with you and being able to respond to it and have that freedom to respond and not feel like it's locked in the past. And that's where a lot of uh, debilitating grief comes from is when something is, is kind of frozen, right? Right, sure. Sometimes societally, mm -hmm. grief can be seen as a weakness. Yes. And what's interesting is what I'm hearing is, you know, that, that, that your relationship to it changes. Yes. Right, and so for example, what you, the person you just spoke about how that a year later the way that he was contextualizing that yeah. shifted yes. throughout time yeah and that's a really interesting thing how there's a journey there yeah that can that can happen that you can come back to yes and how even though that voice message or whatever it was has not changed yeah that the way that the meaning for you has. Yes. It's like revisiting a score. There's a certain part that jumps out at you much more clearly this time, you know, one year, yep. two years later. Um, and so that is because our brain is changing, because we're changing, and also our relationship to whatever it is, the music or a voice or a person is changing. And so I think that having these musical expressions of grief um, can mark it, you know, mark the process and can also make you organize and 
understand your own feelings a lot more clearly. Mm. And that is how we process grief. And that's something we always have to come back to. Um, when my piano teacher passed away uh, from Hawaii in when I was in grad school, I, of course, uh, was very, I was in grad school, so I definitely put off that grief processing, you yeah, know, until right. after. And that is part of the reason, too, I started studying grief is because I realized it would come up at these really usually inopportune of course. times. Um, yep. And I couldn't understand it and I couldn't figure out a way to clarify it to myself, how I was feeling and, you know, you go to verbal therapy and all of these things. And then being able to actually have a dialogue with somebody's voice, whether that's, you know, strictly using the voicemail as is, using the recording as is, or some people take the most important parts they feel at that time from that recording and create mm -hmm. a song from it. Mm -hmm. We've also had people actually create dialogues or singing kind of dialogues between the voice recording and then, and also their own voice. And that's something that is really special too, that you can do with a recording. That reminds me of, it was several years ago now that they created this do out of Natalie Cole singing with her late father, Nacky Cole, that. right? Yes, like, exactly. And, and it's really, really compelling because you hear his voice from the past. Yes. And then her live in person. Yep. And, you know, there's an incredible amount of meaning that comes with that. Talking about music this way illuminates how music can be such a great proxy yeah. for understanding and relationship. And I think this is one of the incredible things and maybe about opera specifically is that when you are seeing the story unfold in front of you, yeah, it often provides opportunity for you to discover something about yourself or yes, one of your relationships or right. It's this kind of permission yes. to what if you can see it kind of outside of yourself a little bit mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and i i remember the first time hearing wagner's opera parsifal live wow at the met and it's you know this is very long i mean with the intermissions and everything i mean this is you know a, at least a five-hour evening right yeah and i remember i i arrived for the performance and i sat down and i was actually seated between two colleagues one of them, a, you know, a senior colleague in the, in, in the industry. And she said, oh, Timothy, is this, your, is this your first Parsifal? And I said, yes, yes, it is. And she said, well, good. You know, in about five hours, you're going to be overwhelmed and, you know, <laughs> we, weeping. And, 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 and I said, oh, sure. Yeah, okay. That's nice. Right, right. right. <laughs> and then sure enough, five hours later, I just have tears streaming down my face and just thinking, I too can be redeemed, right? Like the story of redemption in Parsifal. And yes. I went and I bought a study score of mm -hmm. it at the Juilliard bookstore the next day mm -hmm. and slept with that on my bedside table for a couple of years, right? Wow. And just sort of reading, opening it, opening the score and looking at it and mm -hmm. having that musical memory mm -hmm. was very cathartic for yeah. me and also healing in a lot of it because it was a time in my life when I was going through a really difficult period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and to have that sort of catharsis in the theater, but then being able to walk away with that memory that lived on. Yes. And that, and that right now, even I can recall a semblance of that feeling right from that memory. And you were able to take it with you and, and make it your own Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways by having the score, by, by really learning it, by knowing it. I, I love that story too, because it's about how you have this transformative experience and then how are you bringing that forward mm-hmm. with you and integrating it into the rest of your life. Right. And it doesn't mean you have to have that exact same experience again when you go to Parsifal again, but, and you, you won't, right? right? Sure. But you're actually creating deeper and deeper meaning and memories and it's a part of you yeah. now. Yeah. Two more things I want to get to. And this first one is ducking way back to something you mentioned early on in the conversation sure. about aging. I'm just going to put this out there and you can actually say it properly. That the musical part of the brain is one of mm-hmm. the ones that remains intact the longest. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, a few episodes ago we had Chip Conley and he, he's done a lot of work on sort of advancement in aging, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know mm-hmm. that you and I are young and ish. I'm on the and, ish. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's very likely that even in our lifetimes, these advancements will allow us to live to at least a hundred, yeah. right? Or, yeah. And my children, it's, highly likely. Right. And, and so this really changes the way that we look at life, Mm -hmm. right? Because now, you know, I'm 47, but now I'm probably only halfway there. Right. 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 And so, and, and we've had this whole societal structure around age Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. for so long that is really going to have to shift. I, Love that question because it touches on memory and relationships. And we know that memories are stronger when there are uh, relationships involved with that, whether that's to yourself or to another person or to an inanimate object. And I think that what you're bringing up about the kind of aging extension that's happening is important because it actually validates the importance of creativity even more. I have seen in my work so many experiences where caretakers or children are able to have conversations and recall memories and be really present with um, their parent or the older adult in their life who may be having memory issues through discussions about artistic experiences that they've had. That Parsifal, for example, I think that is something that you will remember for a very long time. For sure. And and that is a way to access connection. And so that to me, so if you think of two people on the end of a spectrum and then you have the musical experience right in the middle, they're able to meet there. Mm. And then from that... You can talk about maybe who was there at that musical experience, but it just makes it so much more grounded Mm -hmm. and less abstract. You know, for example, when you meet someone and you say, oh, 
where are you from? You know, you kind of go through this battery of questions trying to find connection. But if you met somebody that was at that par same Parsifal performance, you would, it would just open up the conversation so much more. And so I think that that is really a key element of continuing connection, continuing that neural activity in older adults, and also bridging that gap, whether it's memory degeneration, um, even just exhaustion, right, from two people being together in the same room and maybe one person being a caretaker for a long time. And um, I think this is a phenomenon that is going to be really important as people continue to live longer if you could tell all of our listeners like do this today mm -hmm. right and something simple super actionable yeah but that take that harnesses the power of what we've talked about mm -hmm. for the last you know few minutes mm -hmm. what would that be to find the piece of music or piece of art that affects you and to actually articulate it to yourself and to one other person as to mm. why it affects you or what it makes you think about. And that will not only connect you to that other person, but it will make you feel, like you said, really empowered with your own, the way you're able to access emotion and connect to creativity. I love that. And that's an easy right. thing to do. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so sometimes you'll hear of people who are saying like, well, I don't really listen to music or I don't really, you know, go to the museum or have these artistic experiences. But actually every person does have right. those experiences. And it's just trying to figure out what exactly it is and then putting it down so it grounds you. And it's something that will be a touch point throughout your life. Parsifal is a touch point and a touchstone. Right. And that is the most, I think, so grounding to your relationship with yourself and others. Mm -hmm. I've never quite thought about it this way. And I'm, I'm glad you've given me this new context of everybody has some sort of musical memory. Yes. Right? Yeah. Everyone. A sound memory, whether right. it's birds you know, and that's what'll happen this afternoon is you'll hear soundscapes mm. a lot of the time of where people grow up, the voices in your life or music. Yeah. yeah. That's really fascinating. I can't wait. So the question I ask everybody, <laughs> what would the world look like with more listening? It would be more empathetic. It would be kinder. It would be more creative for sure um, and more collaborative yeah yeah amazing I'm really glad we got to sit down and talk this has been an amazing Me conversation too. I've enjoyed learning more about you and your amazing work thank you so much I'm excited for tonight thank you for listening to listening on purpose hosted by me Timothy Myers I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. 
You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.